Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Dr. David Karp. David Karp is a professor of sociology and director of the Project on Restorative Justice at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York. His current scholarship focuses on restorative justice in community and educational settings. He was the recipient of the 2010 Donald D. Gehring Award from the Association for Student Conduct Administration for his work on campus restorative justice. David has published more than 100 academic papers and six books, including The Little Book of Restorative Justice for Colleges and Universities in 2013, Wounds That Do Not Bind, Victim-Based Perspectives on the Death Penalty in 2006, and The Community Justice Ideal in 1999. David is on the board of directors for the National Association for Community and Restorative Justice, and he's previously served as an Associate Dean of Student Affairs, Chair of the Department of Sociology, and Director of the Program in Law and Society. David received a Bachelor of Arts degree in Peace and Conflict Studies from the University of California at Berkeley, and a PhD in Sociology from the University of Washington. Welcome to the podcast, David Karp. David is a professor of sociology and the director of the Skidmore College Project on Restorative Justice at Skidmore College in upstate New York. Welcome, David. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I am really thrilled to be speaking with you today about RJ and your expertise on RJ, and also really thrilled to be kind of digging into some of the nuanced issues around restorative justice and its use with sexual misconduct cases. I think kind of a great topic that we can touch on today, and hopefully our listeners can find some really good value in figuring out how to apply that on their campuses. But as always, we love to begin our episodes by asking you about your journey into the profession. How did you become a professor and the director of this RJ project? Well, I, um, I've been a sociology professor for 20 years, and I, I, everybody's got a long journey to get through their PhDs, I suppose. But I didn't get introduced to restorative justice until uh, I had finished my PhD and was doing a postdoc at George Washington University in um, Washington, D.C., and I went to a conference where the Vermont Department of Corrections uh, was presenting their brand new restorative justice program that was a probation program. And uh, I thought that the model was fascinating. And a year later, I got this job as an assistant professor here at Skidmore and uh, and reconnected with uh, the folks at Vermont Corrections because I needed to do research. I was just trying to get the lay of the land, realized that Vermont uh, is only an hour away from Saratoga Springs, where I live, and um, and then began a series of research projects uh, in collaboration with Vermont Corrections, evaluating their program, uh, doing some qualitative research to find out what, what it was like for participants uh, in the program, and um, that was my introduction, and, um, and then soon thereafter, I ended up uh, working with folks on campus to incorporate the principles that we learned uh, from Vermont uh, into our own campus uh, disciplinary process. So that goes back uh, all the way to 1999-2000. So you were really on the forefront of the restorative justice movement on college campuses. Yeah, you know, when... I, when they started their program in Vermont, they, in fact, had never heard the term restorative justice. It was only later that people said, hey, this new program we built is actually a restorative justice program. And they shrugged their shoulders and said, okay, I wouldn't, we can call it that. Um, so it was really not very well known. And as an academic studying restorative justice, uh, it, was, it was a rather easy thing to do because there was not that much published about it. Uh, but since that time, uh, it's really grown exponentially. So it's really a global social movement now with so many different kinds of applications from prison systems to elementary schools. And uh, higher ed is just one uh, part of uh, this much larger um, uh, set of changes in how we think about punishment. 
And what really grabbed you about restorative justice? What made you look into it in the beginning? And then kind of what has had you uh, or kind of kept your interest peaked for all of these years across this research? I think it was, uh, you know, usually restorative justice people say it's, it's what they experience when they see it in action. Uh, and so I had some early experiences in Vermont watching it unfold that were pretty compelling to me. But I, I guess, uh, so I was teaching it, uh, but not really doing it. Uh, I was doing research about it. But what sealed the deal for me was an early experience I had when I was teaching a criminal justice class. And uh, we had actually talked about restorative justice, but um, it was just a small slice of that class. And one um, Monday morning, a student came into class and she was looking really miserable. And I asked her what was going on and she proceeded to tell the class uh, this story about um, her weekend where someone had broken into her house. She lived off campus with other students and she was really quite frightened by the experience uh, and hadn't gotten any sleep either Saturday night or Sunday night. Nobody was willing to sleep at their house. Uh, They'd gone off to different friends. So here it was Monday morning and she was um, you know, super tired and stressed about what had happened. And we, um, since it was a criminal justice class, I asked the class, what do you think uh, she should do? And uh, they asked if she had gone to the police, which she had not. And everybody was excited to have her go file a, a police complaint. Um, but they quickly realized that there wasn't much to go on. It was unlikely that the police were going to stake out her house uh, in anticipation of this intruder coming again. Um, So they did encourage her to do that, but we we shifted the conversation and we started talking about restorative justice. And really what that's about is understanding the harm uh, and what can be done about the harm. And so she talked about some very specific things that the police would not deal with, but that were important to her. The first was that she and her friends had rented this place, but they didn't really know how to work with their landlord. It was the first time they'd had a rental. And uh, the reason why this person was able to break into their house so easily was that the front door lock was broken and they had um, contacted the landlord, but nothing had been done about it. So one of the uh, students in the class said that he knew how to fix locks, and if she wanted to go with him to Home Depot after class, he could have a new one installed within an hour. And uh, and then she said that would be great, uh, but she still didn't know what to do about the rental overall, uh, and she and her friends really wanted to just get out of the lease and move away. Um, And someone else in the class said that her mom was a lawyer. And they could call her after class and find out about leases and rental agreements and how that worked. Uh, So they made a plan for that. And then someone else said that they didn't want her to be alone uh, in the house at night. And the class ended up making a roster of um, rotation schedule for um, making sure that she was never alone. If her roommates were out, they would come over and hang out until her roommates got back. So that was all probably in about 10 or 15 minutes of discussion. And it was uh, amazingly illuminating for me what it means uh, when you shift away from trying to find and punish the offender to what are the victim's needs and how can we meet them. And so even in the absence of finding this person who caused the harm, um, there were still many things that could be done that were reassuring to her. And you, you could really see the stress leave her body um, after this uh, showing of community support or peer support. And, uh, and I found that just very transformative. So that was a big interest I had early on in making sure that our campus had a restorative process in place and supporting other campuses to do the same. I think that's a beautiful anecdote to illustrate the power of RJ. Now, if I'm a brand new professional or brand new to the concept of RJ, how would you describe the process of being in a circle or um, kind of the general setup and and thesis behind RJ? Well, we're sort of just as people 
you know, often distinguish between restorative philosophy and restorative practice. Uh, and the philosophies illustrated in the story I just described is that the centerpiece of restorative justice is um, the concern with addressing harm. So what's the harm that was caused? What could be done uh, to meet the needs of the person who's been harmed? Uh, and so almost anything can be restorative if that is the starting place and that uh, commitment to addressing harm is the focus. Uh, but but there are many practices that have developed, and I, as I mentioned, it's a it's really a global movement. So there are many different kinds of applications for different kinds of offenses. Sometimes it's criminal, sometimes it's policy violations, sometimes it's not policy violation. Uh, and so the practices can change for the situation. Uh, but the classic is a facilitated dialogue uh, between a harmed party and the person who caused harm. And that's that happens after a pre-circle or pre-conference process where facilitators meet with the parties and explain what restorative justice was all about and ask if they would like to participate because it's voluntary and assess whether it's appropriate or safe to do so. And one of the key questions is whether the person who caused harm is willing to take responsibility for their behavior. Uh, so restorative justice is really different from uh, any kind of adversarial or fact-finding process that is uh, where one person is saying, you did this, and another person saying, no, I didn't. Uh, and so we need that kind of due process for those situations where we have to figure out and determine if someone's responsible. Uh, but often... There's no uh, real question about that. Uh, often on campuses, people will say, well, yes, I, I did it, but, you know, I agree I vo violated policy number seven, but I don't think I violated policy number 11. And there's that kind of argument. But the fundamentals are there, that the person uh, is saying, yes, this incident happened, and yes, I did what I did. Often they're caught red-handed, and there's not really much dispute about it. And so when that occurs, um, the fact-finding is less important than the impact, figuring out what, what was, who was harmed, how are they harmed, what do they need, what are the obligations of the person who caused the harm uh, to make amends for what they've done, uh, what do they need to do to reassure us that they will be responsible members of the community going forward in the future. So the, um, a restorative justice process or dialogue is really a facilitated dialogue that does two things. One is lets everybody have a voice in uh, describing what, what happened and how they were impacted. And once we know that, the second phase is really the brainstorming process. Where do we go from here? How do we address these harms? How do we rebuild trust? Um, what's the process going forward? And um, and then there's, of course, follow-up because we want people to be accountable for the agreements that they make. So it's often a process of supporting the student, uh, maybe the respondent, uh, in uh, following through and um, delivering on uh, what they've agreed to during the circle process. And I know you're one of our national experts and perhaps even international experts on the subject. So how do we know from an empirical lens that this is an effective practice? There's actually quite a bit of research. Uh, there's research in K through 12 schools. There's research in criminal justice systems. Uh, and there's some research on campuses as well. And the research is pretty consistent. Uh, most of the questions that people want answered are around reoffending. And there's some good evidence that restorative justice can reduce reoffending. Uh, and um, Almost always people are wondering if uh, harm parties who participate in this process are satisfied by the process. Do they feel safer? Do they feel like the person was held accountable? Do they think it was fair? Did they get their needs met? Or were the harms addressed? Uh, did they have a voice in the process? Questions like that. And also very consistently, uh, the evidence is that um, restorative justice is um, very powerful uh, for victims uh, who participate in the process. 
on campus, uh, there's uh, more limited research. And um, uh, I was I conducted one project that was specifically focused on student development outcomes. Um, which, of course, is an important goal for student conduct administrators. And so we looked at six different dimensions of student development and compared it with more traditional administrative hearings or um, conduct boards. And what I would say is that restorative justice is often compared with more punitive approaches, and that's comparing it how it plays out in the criminal justice system. But that's not a fair comparison in student affairs, where student conduct administrators are already very committed to student development and um, educational outcomes. So we're really comparing outcomes that are focused like a motivational interview that's focused on helping the student review their own behavior and make better decisions in the future versus a restorative process, which does that. That's that's a component of it, but also is focused on the harm parties and meeting their needs. And so what we found is that the standard process generates pretty good outcomes, but that the restorative um, additions add value and students get more out of the process. Uh, and so there's some pretty good evidence that it's, it improves student learning over what we sort of typically do. I think that's a really important distinction that you made about kind of the uses of restorative justice and not comparing it to retributive systems. Cause the goals are different, um, and even the process of, of information gathering is different. So how have you seen these models be most successfully used on college campuses? Uh, we've become very interested in a model that's uh, widely promoted in K-12 through schools. It's called the whole school approach, or we, we would say the whole campus approach. And, uh, and that has um, three tiers of implementation. And, uh, and so the first tier, which is meant really for everybody on campus, is the use of restorative practices for uh, community building and relationship building. So you might have um, an orientation program that, in, as we all have, an orientation program that introduces students to Title IX policy or um, affirmative consent concepts. Uh, and um, so instead of, or maybe in addition to um, educating students through an online program or through some kind of large audience presentation, um, we also have uh, circle practices where uh, they're smaller, more intimate, and you can get deeper into the conversation about what, what does it mean for students to be entering campus uh, in terms of their sexual lives. So what, what do they think about hookup culture? What do they think about alcohol and, and sex? What do they think about consent? What's their understanding of it? Um, what are they willing to commit to? So you can have more meaningful conversation, which we think helps students understand and um, commit to more responsible behavior. We could do the same thing around, you know, other issues on campus uh, of concern around campus climate, uh, around race relations or free speech, uh, whatever it may be. So tier one practices are really designed to strengthen a community. Maybe res lifers would uh, use circle practices to develop floor contracts or agreements as opposed to individually negotiated within rooms um, so that the community can keep meeting uh, and reviewing how that's going. So that's tier one. Tier two is what we've already been describing, which is responding restoratively to in particular incidents of harm or conflict. Uh, and that's where the conduct world primarily lives. Again, that's sort of easier to do when it's already embedded within the larger campus community uh, of dialogue and understanding of norms. And uh, and then there's tier three, which is what do we do about students who have been suspended and are coming back after a period of separation? Uh, and our, I don't think that our formal policies for student reintegration are particularly thoughtful or strong. Individual campuses may, may have uh, their own little protocols that are good, uh, but they tend to be, you know, as most people know, they tend to be very private and individual, like a meeting with a conduct administrator, you know, one, at the beginning of the semester when they return. 
And I don't think that that, uh, essentially, I don't think that cuts it anymore in, uh, uh, in our world of social media, where once reentry was a fairly private event, it's now much more likely to be a public event, particularly around issues like bias incidents or sexual misconduct. There are a lot of people who are paying attention, a lot of students, student groups, uh, faculty, staff who are anxious, worried, uh, even hostile to the student returning to the campus. Uh, so there's a lot more pressure around uh, that reentry process. And so using a restorative circle process for reintegration is important to both reassure the community that they have a voice and an understanding uh, about the student and where they're at and uh, something in place to support the student to, to make sure that they're successful and responsible when they return. So the, I think best practice now is really an integrated approach where you're looking at the prevention side or tier one response, restorative responses, and then also the reintegration. David, if I want to get training on this, or if I'm interested in reading a whole lot more about how to use tier one and tier two approaches on my campus, where can I go to get that information? I try to keep a lot of information uh, live on um, my website, the Skidmore Project website, so people can go to skidmorerj.org. That's the simple way to go. And um, we announce trainings that are available. I know that um, you know a lot of student affairs organizations offer training. We just did one with NASPA. We're doing one with ACTA. Um, Gehring Academy offers uh, RJ training. So. I think there are good options. I published a, a book called The Little Book of Restorative Justice for Colleges and Universities, and it's part of a restorative justice series of books. There are probably 15 or 20 now um, on different topics in restorative justice, and the great thing about this series is that all of the books are really cheap. They're about five bucks a copy, so it's easy for someone to get a quick overview of what this is all about. Uh, or for a, um, I really like it when um, campuses do essentially like uh, book clubs, you know, like a, a division or a, a department might all get copies and then talk about it uh, as, a, as part of their consideration around implementation. That's good as a, you know, as kind of a cheaper resource. And then on my website, I have a lot of materials that, that can be downloaded for free. So that's even better. And there are, you know, occasional webinars, that, that sort of thing. But we generally try to be a, a, a clearinghouse for uh, the different information. And uh, also you'll see on my website that we coordinate a number of different networking groups. So they're uh, basically Google groups where there's information that people have and they just share it. So we have one for sexual misconduct one for uh, bias incidents, uh, a general one for campus restorative justice. Uh, there's one for Catholic campuses. There's one for med schools. So there's a lot of little networking groups happening for people with their particular areas of expertise or interest. So we got a little bit off track with that question, so I apologize, listeners, for kind of derailing us slightly, but I thought that that information component would be really important for folks who are looking to do this on their campuses. Uh, I also realized, David, that I think you and I may have been talking with a little bit of insider languages, or insider language pieces, rather, uh, around the word circle. So... You know, when I facilitate a circle, I have a particular concept of what that means. But how would you describe the circle process to someone who's never heard of it or seen it before? Well, there are two, there are really two jargon words that float around restorative justice. One is restorative circles and the other is restorative conferences. And they have different origins. Circles have their origins in Native American or First Nations people uh, of Canada practices. And so they're... Uh, a practice that generally involves using a talking piece of some sort, usually a object of meaning uh, that's uh, relevant to the community, um, like a hockey team might pass a puck around the circle as uh, their talking piece, and it shows who's who is the speaker. People know when it's their, going to be their turn to speak. It's a process of ensuring that everybody has a voice in the process, and um, 
and there's a series of questions that get asked as you go around the circle. Sometimes people will, the circle facilitator will, uh, in between rounds, summarize things or open things up to more general discussion. And then there is restorative conferencing, and the origins of that come from New Zealand and uh, indigenous practice there of the Maori uh, justice process, uh, which roughly got translated originally to uh, the, the phrase family group conference and uh, then got shorthanded. Uh, but that's it's a, similar to circle practice, but uh, in that case, uh, the facilitator has a script or a protocol, a guide for the set of questions that they're going to ask, and they go... They don't go around the circle. They'll tend to go to specific individuals. Like, first, we're going to hear from the harm parties. Then we're going to hear from the people who caused harm. Then we're going to hear from support people. Then we're going to go back to the people who uh, were harmed. So there's a, a structured method to it. So again, it ensures that everybody's participating in a structured way. Uh, so they tend to be very transparent processes uh, and um, designed to be you know, relatively safe. We can't eliminate all power imbalances that exist in the world, uh, but we do what we can to ensure that everyone has a voice. So in a traditional college circle process where we are focusing on responding to a behavior issue, uh, who's typically in a room for those circles? The the pre-circle process is really important for determining that. So you start with the person who, you know, may file the complaint, uh, and ask who, who they think has been harmed and invite them to bring support people. And then you go to the person who caused the harm, the respondent, uh, and find out uh, who, who they think should be involved, a uh, support person, or if there are other people uh, involved that caused harm. Uh, and so everyone's invited. Uh, you may also include community representatives uh, who may represent either the, maybe the, institution, like for example, around sexual harm, there's the needs of the survivor, but there are also needs of the institution around safety, around concerns uh, about, you know, if there's a reoffending. So uh, we would want that voice of the institution represented somehow. And, um, and then there may be other people uh, who are participating because they have some special knowledge about that kind of uh, behavior or misconduct. Uh, so it can be small. It, it, uh, circles can get uh, pretty big depending upon the circumstance. I think that's a nice transition into kind of the hot topic of restorative justice of today, which is how might colleges and universities use these practices effectively to address concerns around Title IX or sexual misconduct, dating to violence, domestic violence, and stalking? So I know that you're doing some work on that right now. Uh, where, where do you think the field is going and how can we use these? Well, it, it, it was not going anywhere when people understood Title IX guidance or federal guidance as uh, prohibiting restorative justice. Uh, that's uh, never actually been the case, but there was a prohibition against the use of mediation, and it was not clear that uh, restorative justice and mediation are two different things. So one of the things our project has done is to help clarify that distinction, and if you go to the website, we've got a briefing paper that draws clearly the distinction between mediation and restorative justice. But since uh, we have a new administration and um, the Obama 2011 guidance was uh, uh, withdrawn, there's, uh, there's no new guidance. So that, I think that clearly opens up the possibility. So I don't think campuses need to be concerned about federal restrictions. Uh, there may be state-level restrictions that people have to pay attention to. But what we, I think what we've discovered since 2011 is that while campuses have built very strong formal Title IX policies and procedures uh, that are um, you know, incredibly important, and, and they were very much designed to reassure students that the campuses are taking the issue seriously, we still have the incredible problem of non-reporting meaning we know most students, maybe up to 90%, who have been harmed through for sexual assault, sexual harassment, domestic violence, stalking, the full list, 
um, will not make use of the campus systems uh, for resolution. And, um, and so what we're thinking is that by adding a restorative option, that more students will uh, find that in line with what their needs are. So we hope that the systems that have been built will remain in place and the students that want to go through a formal process will feel like they can. Uh, but for students who want something different, that they also have other options available to them. Can you give an example of why this RJ practice for these types of cases might be more beneficial to both complainants and respondents than the formal processes that we might have built already or might be an excellent supplement to those processes? Yeah, I think so. I think that the issue is that one of the primary wishes that harm parties have is around acknowledgement, that they really want the person who did what they did to acknowledge that they have hurt them. Uh, And more than that, they want reassurance that they will not behave that way towards anybody else. Unfortunately, the, the adversarial systems that we have are really designed to promote denial of responsibility, not acceptance. Uh, there's so much fear and defensiveness. Students are quick to lawyer up. Lawyers are quick to say, deny everything. The consequences of admission are, you know, so punitive, ultimately, right? Expulsion or uh, potentially uh, criminal prosecution that it's in the student's interest to minimize or deny responsibility. So that's exactly the thing that um, survivors don't want to have happen is they don't want to sit in a hearing and hear the person deny responsibility when they know, you know, what, when they know what happened. Um, And so uh, by providing a restorative option, you basically increase the likelihood that uh, someone can take responsibility for their behavior and it won't come back to haunt them um, in such a punitive way that they'll reject that admission. Um, or fight it uh, with everything that they have. So if if the goal, it, it, I think what restorative justice does is it, it, it increases the chance that someone will be willing to take responsibility for their behavior. And that's not because they think they're going to get off easy. It's that they uh, may really be, feel remorseful. They m- may really know that they were, w- are surprised to, to learn that they've caused harm and would like to do the right thing. Uh, but the current systems really you know, don't give them that option and restorative options do. I think you make an excellent point in thinking about the intersections of perhaps concurrent criminal processes or perhaps concurrent uh, general student conduct processes where those processes really do promote potential deniability of any sort of responsibility because of those punitive outcomes that could be on the table. So how do you find um, that RJ practices with sexual misconduct can function well, given that a respondent might be fearful that that admission could result in significant consequence in other realms? It's a big hurdle for building a restorative program uh, to the extent that the um, respondent feels like it will be anything that they say will later be used against them. Is you know they'll get advised by lawyers or parents or whomever uh, not to participate. So what's needed is uh, some confidentiality protections, and uh, that can come in essentially two ways. One is an agreement, a memorandum of understanding between the university and the local district attorney's office uh, that says they will not try to get evidence from the restorative process uh, if it's going on. Um, In other words, if a survivor wants to go to the police at any point during the restorative justice process or after, they're, they're agreeing that any evidence that's collected outside the RJ process is is fine, but that they won't use evidence gathered inside the restorative justice process. So if, um, so I think that the accused students would need that reassurance that if they're going to admit to anything, um, it would be confidential to that process. So that's one solution. The other would be uh, broader and legislative at the state level, like New York State has a law that protects mediation practice. So what's said inside a mediation process 
uh, cannot be subpoenaed um, in either a civil or criminal uh, case. And, um, and so that, in, that would really require that uh, campuses partner with local community dispute resolution centers um, to avail themselves of those protections. Those partnerships are critical for the success of, of these programs on our campuses, but I also know that there are some programs that are using RJ as a deferment process. Uh, can you talk about any of those? Uh, I think that's a good way to go. So, uh, you know, the idea that um, a student would admit that they caused harm, but they're not really admitting that they violated a policy, uh, and that would get the process started. Uh, so, um, they admit harm that starts a restorative process that, um, I, I should say doesn't necessarily end up in a face-to-face dialogue. That's actually not particularly the goal of restorative justice. The goal is to identify the needs of the survivor, uh, or the institution and get those needs met. Um, so often, this could be an exchange of written communication. It could be a shuttle negotiation where a facilitator goes between the two parties and says, you know, so-and-so says this happened and this is their harm and this is what they need. What do you think about that? And then they bring the response back. Um, and so it may end up being facilitated indirectly uh, in that way. Uh, I've heard of cases where um, there's an exchange of videos. So the harm party makes a video testimonial, like a victim impact statement that the Q student would need to watch and then create a video response to that so that there's more hu- human style interaction because there's body language and, um, you know, you can see someone's face that's different from a written communication. Um, or potentially a Skype-type dialogue where you're not in the same room, but you're still speaking. So there are lots of variations around the exploration of harm and and the brainstorming about what to do in response. Uh, you were asking about the, um, the diversion dimension of it. So the idea is that if all goes well and agreement is reached through this, then there would be no formal charge. Uh, but ideally the campus would set up a system where there's a record of this. It's not a uh, conduct record so that if the student were to not follow through on their obligations or were to um, reoffend in some way, uh, that this information would not be lost and would be used in a latter situation. Certainly the record keeping uh, of these agreements uh, and these conversations is critical to the success of the programs. But I also know that there are a lot of institutions that just simply don't have the resources to run these robust restorative justice programs. Uh, So what institutions uh, do you think other folks could look to to see what a potential model could be for their campus? And then also I want to talk a little bit about how to infuse RJ principles into one-to-one conversations. Yeah. Okay. I can talk about both of those. Uh, so there, I would say there are a lot of institutions circling around restorative justice right now. I get a lot of emails from people who are saying we're, we're, we're exploring this. I was literally on the phone with people from university of, uh, Indiana, uh, uh, an hour ago, um, with that same framework where they're doing research. Uh, but there are very insti- very few institutions that actually have um, programs off the ground. Uh, so I looked at University of Michigan. The College of New Jersey is doing some really interesting pioneering work right now. And then there are a lot of universities that have pretty well-developed restorative programs in general, but are not necessarily doing them for Title IX. Uh, so there's, uh, there's not that much out there for Title IX right now. I think we're, it's all, we're really just at the beginning stages. Can you talk a little bit more about what New Jersey might be doing? Yeah, I had a conversation with them uh, recently, and they, uh, the dean there worked with, uh, over last summer, with four survivors, so this is as I understand it, um, worked with four survivors, all of whom chose not to proceed with a formal Title IX complaint. And and so she worked with them to develop pathways that, that they would want to see. And so restorative justice was part of that. 
and then they got some training uh, and they've started. Uh, so they've done several cases already, and already the, um, uh, as I understand it, in the months, just the few months that they've started this, one student chose to go the traditional formal pathway, and four chose the restorative option. So that's some limited new evidence that uh, it's something that students would like to pursue. They're, the primary interest among students is that more indirect pathway, um, rather than the face-to-face, uh, but apparently all those cases went really well. So those are some fascinating pilot examples, and as we kind of look forward to how this could blossom, uh, where do you see uh, colleges and universities using this as a full practice, and then that reiteration of how do we use these practices in our one-to-one conversations, even if we're not able to do a full system? Well, the first step, I think, is is to incorporate the the principles and uh, the questions of restorative justice into one-on-one discussions. Uh, so our uh, colleague, Karen Williamson at uh, the University of Michigan, she's the director of their um, Sexual Assault Prevention and Awareness Center. Uh, she was the Title IX coordinator at Swarthmore College, and uh, she had some uh, really great success building a very restorative Title IX investigation process, so incorporating the principles in a way that made that process very supportive, and that really increased uh, reporting overall because students saw that the Title IX office was, um, you know, was the right place to go for them, uh, not intimidating. Uh, so I think asking the right questions about harm is something that uh, people can do you know, immediately in their administrative hearings uh, across conduct uh, and can get real value from that. And then you get even more value once you start to invite harm parties into the process. What are some examples of the good questions that could sound restorative or could actually be restorative in those meetings? The, um, there's a pretty straight uh, formula for a conferencing model. Uh, there's a slightly different mix of questions for the um, harm party and for the respondent. But the, um, for the respondent, it, uh, the sequence is what happened, uh, what were you thinking at the time, what have you thought about since, uh, who's been affected by this incident and in what way, uh, what can be done to address the harm and rebuild trust. And then for a harm party, it's what happened, what impact has this incident had on you what's been the hardest thing for you, uh, and then what can be done to address the harm. Uh, essentially, what are your needs, uh, and how can we, um, how can we meet them? Um, but I think that the layering of talking about what happened, uh, talking about the impact, and then talking about what's been the hardest is a way of dialing in uh, for harm parties what's most important to them. And we're often surprised where we think it's, you know, it, it seems like a straight-up property damage case, and then we learn it's the family photos that were lost because they were not backed up on the phone or what, whatever it was. Um, you know, that's, it's the sentimental value, not the monetary value, or the, or the reverse. Maybe we think it's something that, does, you know, that is going to have a lot of sentimental value, but the student's really concerned about the money. Uh, so we don't know until we ask, uh, and we uh, create the space to really uh, find out what's most important. What would a typical agreement look like, or what agreement items have you seen to be fairly common in these types of cases? That's very hard because what's I think one of the most amazing things about restorative justice is, is how creative they can get and how customized they can get to addressing the needs of the um, the individuals involved. So they're often surprising. Uh, it's really different from a more traditional approach where there's a straight-up menu, you know, if this violation, this is the sanction. And so institutions, I think, uh, hopefully uh, will be open to and supportive of that because that's really part of the educational mission is that curiosity and um, educational dimension of exploring how do you uh, exactly meet the needs of the community at this time. 
but there are some, you know, some basic tags so for emotional harm. It's really about the acknowledgement and the apology for material harm. It's about restitution for communal harm, like damaging the reputation of a, of a group or, a, or, or of the institution. You know, it's probably some kind of community service. I, I got an email from someone today who uh, facilitated their first case at their institution. They just launched a restorative program and was emailing me to say all went well. And uh, it was a student who had uh, launched his own campaign to raise awareness around immigration issues, DACA, um, you know, what's happening in this country around that, and created these stickers that said, all immigrants are welcome here, and then plastered them around campus. And uh, what the student didn't realize is that those stickers had very sticky adhesive and the uh, maintenance services had to spend a lot of time scraping them off windows and so forth. So there was damage done. It was violation of, you know, publicity policy uh, and a perfect case for restorative justice because um, the student really wasn't out to do something malicious. They were... Um, they had their cause that they were trying to promote, uh, but they did it in a way that did cause, uh, it did have an impact, a negative impact. And so the outcome of that one was some work with the maintenance services, so some community service uh, to make up for the time that uh, that they had caused uh, that, that department to lose, and also to create a, a video educational video for students around immigration issues. And I, I can't, I don't remember the details of it, but you could imagine something like, um, you know, like what if you're a DACA student, here's what you need to know. Like from this institution, here are the resources available to you. So that really got to the core of what the student was trying to do, but, but help the student do it in a more appropriate way. Well, David, I know that we are starting to come up on our time. I think you and I could probably talk about this for years on end and not get bored. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So I, I want to ask you, kind of, is there anything else uh, for our listeners today that you want to make sure that they know about RJ before we wrap up? I think that, uh, you know, I think it's good to explore RJ. I would encourage campuses to build uh, some communities of interest, like a task force or a committee to start reading and thinking about where it might fit on their campus. Every campus starts program in a different way. Sometimes it comes out of res life. Sometimes it's Title IX. Sometimes it's around bias response. Uh, so where the energy is, uh, it, I think it should be followed. And, uh, and then get some training in the practices uh, and start Start with the easier cases, uh, not because it should be limited to those easy cases, but because people should have uh, some facilitator skill before they take on the harder cases. Uh, And I do think that um, it's something that they will find a value uh, and that students do. I think it's good for the students on all sides or parties on all sides. People have been harmed and uh, people have caused the harm. I guess I will ask you one last follow-up question, David, which is how do you, or what have you seen to be successful for conduct officers getting other campus stakeholders on board with RJ practices? I think that varies. Uh, I think some people are convinced by a good story. Others are convinced by data. Others are convinced by a persuasive, you know, theoretical model. Uh, And all of those exist. Uh, so I think it's about finding uh, the right approach. I think that it requires some determination. There's always resource questions. People are nervous about the time and energy it takes. But I think if you think of this as an opportunity for you know, significant contribution to student learning and development and also uh, significant opportunities for uh, student leadership development because we have um, many institutions in- include students, undergrads and grads as facilitators of restorative practices, um, co- uh, partner with education departments, criminal justice departments, student affairs programs, where there are uh, conflict resolution programs, uh, where there are opportunities for um, academic affairs and student affairs to collaborate and provide opportunities for application or practicum experiences for students. I think you can get a lot of uh, the resource questions addressed uh, creatively that way. 
Thank you, David. And as always, we like to ask our guests, what are you currently reading? Yes, you uh, you signaled that you might ask that question, and I was thinking the whole time that I, um, I'm i reading a, a mystery novel right now, but I can't remember the title of it or the oh, author's no. <laughs> name, because that's the problem with uh, having uh, reading things on a Kindle, is that I, I once after I get it, I never see the title or name again after I start reading it. The last substantive book I read in, in this territory is a brand new book by Marilyn Armour and Mark Umbright called Violence, Restorative Justice, and Forgiveness. And it's a, a really interesting book. These are social work professors that um, followed 20 cases of uh, restorative dialogues in uh, cases of serious violence. Like 19 out of the 20 were uh, murder cases. Uh, the, and then the, the 20th was a shooting. And, uh, and they develop a model for why restorative practices work. It has to do with um, kind of the energy uh, shifts that happen and the transference of pain from victim to the offender as they take on responsibility for their behavior and then it gets released. So it's a powerful book uh, and provides more empirical evidence of um, why this all works. Excellent. And David, if anyone would like to reach you after the podcast ends, how can they get a hold of you? Oh, folks are welcome to email me, uh, certainly to ask to join any of our um, email lists. Uh, the easiest thing to do is just to go to the website, skidmorerj.org, where my email lives, uh, as well as other information. Great. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast. That's ASCA P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Or you can always email us at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, David, for sharing your viewpoint today. Thanks for having me. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we will be observing a one-week break in honor of spring break. I hope you all have had a wonderful spring break if you have not gotten to yours already, and we hope you'll come back and join us on the 17th of April. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com.